From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, and ho, ho, ho there, and welcome to episode 177 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm actually really happy. I don't remember the last time I've heard you say your uh, hey there, hi there, ho there opening. I mean, but obviously with this, with the addition of the uh, the Christmas spirit into it, but that, w- that was a nice trip back down memory lane. Wasn't it? I, that was my... That was always my greeting on the uh, our old classic Disneyland show, and and then any time I was on the uh, Walt Disney World show, yeah, I was. That's I how think, I would introduce myself. I think the last time I've probably heard that, unless I'm just blanking in between, was probably uh, probably in 2016 when we did our our big event, our last huge event that we worked with Disneyland on when we did the uh, the the. Disneyland celebration right around their their 60th anniversary. We did it like six months afterwards, but uh, we are still pushing that. I think that's the last time maybe you've you've we've done a big Disneyland event together. But yeah, that was a nice stroll down memory lane. So thank you for that. that. Was. Well, you're welcome. Maybe maybe I need to bring it back in 2021. Maybe when maybe. we. You know, when we, we are all looking forward to a, to a happier year mm-hmm. than this last year has been for us. <laughs> yeah. But it is that most wonderful time of year when we all gather around and watch our favorite Christmas and holiday films. And Craig and I in the past have talked about how we have extensive lists that we watch each year. Uh, Craig has to start watching in August, I believe, <laughs> in order to get through his list. I just, I am a diehard. I do not start until Thanksgiving evening. And um, and then I just watch what I can. And if some just I don't get to, I don't get to. And this year, so, you know, we, so we have a lot now that are available on various streaming services. And I think you and I still have a lot in physical media because not everything's available on streaming services, as I've learned this year. Yeah. And and in this episode, we're going to share our must-sees from Disney Plus and Hulu, since that is a part of Disney's streaming service strategy, as we learned in the uh, Disney Investor Call recently. <laughs> so, so, Craig and I had identical Disney Plus lists <laughs> when... When we shared them, which isn't surprising because our Halloween show lists were exactly the same, too, when we did a Halloween show. But I also had some films from Hulu that I watch and a couple of others from Disney Plus that weren't on Craigslist that I watch. So I'm going to reach into my video Christmas stocking first, and I'm going to pull out a film that begins on Halloween. 
that you can see on Disney+. And of course, that's The Nightmare Before Christmas. And I know there are many people that believe this is a Halloween film. Disneyland certainly seems to. Because <laughs> they decorate the Haunted Mansion for, uh, for this at Halloween with the Haunted Mansion holiday. Um, but both Craig and I agree, this is a Christmas film. Yes. So, and, and of course, The Nightmare Before Christmas is a 1993 stop-motion musical dark fantasy film. It's directed by Henry Selleck. It's produced and co-written by Tim Burton. It tells the story of Jack Skellington, a being from Halloween Town, who opens a portal to Christmas Town and decides to take over the holiday. And Danny Elfman wrote the film score and provided the singing voice of Jack, as well as other minor characters. The remaining principal voice cast includes Chris Sarandon, Catherine O'Hara, who there's another TV series I've been binge watching, and I can't believe Moira Rose is also Sally. I it's <laughs> it's one of those ones like I know lately this year the entire meme has been how is the mom from Home Alone also also Moira Rose, but it's like I if you're limiting her to just that like my next stop is Nightmare Before Christmas, yes. but mm-hmm. her her take on Sally is so subtle that I, I understand why people might not connect it immediately, but, uh, and, and her song's actually probably my favorite song in the entire movie, too. So, oh, yes, uh, her lament. Yeah. Yep. Well, Love Sally's yeah. lament. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then William Hickey, Ken Page, and Glenn Shaddix. Shaddix. Um, Tim Burton said that this film has all the elements I wanted for it, the holidays. He said, I love both Halloween and Christmas, with beautiful but misunderstood characters, drama, sadness, and optimism. When I watch it now after having had it in me for so long, I love it. Now, Tim Burton attended CalArts, and he was looking for potential new talent, new ideas, the Walt Disney Studio always reviewed the students' final projects, and they liked Burton's short feature, Stock of the Celery Monster. So they offered him a job. And he was teamed with veteran animator Glenn Keane to work on the animated feature, The Fox and the Hound, that was released in 1981. And Burton said, I couldn't draw those four-legged Disney foxes. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't even fake the Disney style. Mine looked like road kills. <laughs> but um, Burton found himself assigned to drawing the distance shots, where his lack of ability in the approved Disney style of cute drawing would be less noticeable. But he became visibly depressed at work. Um, he demonstrated erratic behavior. And I think we saw some of this in Waking Sleeping Beauty. Uh, you know, in some of the video they showed yeah, of him, yeah. you know, and, and you know, he, he, he it included him sleeping in a closet. And so he was teamed with another new animator, Andreas Deja, in the hopes that Deja might be able to make Burton's unusually sketchy angular artwork more Disney-esque for film. You know, I remember I heard Andreas speak at the Walt Disney Family Museum and even talked about, I, I mean, it, it, Tim Burton was so quirky. He went and had his wisdom teeth out. And he returned to work right after the teeth were out with, like, the blood, like, running down his chin onto his shirt Mm -hmm. and all that. I mean, very bizarre. Anyway, so they worked as concept artists for the fantasy animated feature The Black Cauldron. It was released in 85, where it was felt, you know, the Burton's gothic sensibilities might be better utilized. And looking back on that 
Burton said, they were very nice to me. They said, we're going to do this movie, The Black Cauldron. So I just sat in a room for a year and came up with ideas and stuff. Just do any idea I wanted to. And it was great. It was like weird characters, weird props, weird furniture, just sitting in a room doing whatever I wanted. But at some point, I realized they had no intention of using any of it. However, Burton's work caught the attention of producer Julie Hickson and the head of creative development at Disney at the time, Tom Willett, or Wilhite. And they sensed that Burton's originality might be worth exploring non-traditional Disney projects. So it was Wilhite who got the funding to make the animated short Burton had written a wood direct titled Vincent in 1982 about a boy who wanted to grow up to be Vincent Price, which I love that one. Yeah. And... In 1982, Burton worked on another poem story like Vincent, but this time it was about a Halloween land, and it was three pages long and featured Jack Skellington and his ghost dog Zero at a tiny, glowing orange jack-o'-lantern as a nose and Santa Claus. It was called The Nightmare Before Christmas as a takeoff on the famous Christmas poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas. It is commonly known as The Night Before Christmas. And Animator Henry Selleck was also working at the Disney studio and was also disillusioned that none of his unique proposals had developed because they were just not the Disney way. So he first encountered Burton in his Nightmare Before Christmas project at this time and was supportive when Burton proposed it as a half-hour television holiday special, perhaps narrated by Vincent Price. And Burton also proposed it as a proposed is a possible like children's book. And again, Disney was just not interested. So before he left Disney, Burton also directed a black and white live action short titled Frankenweenie for 1984. And it was a twist on the classic Frankenstein story where a young boy brings a stitched together dead dog Sparky back to life through electricity. And Selleck also left the studio around the same time as Burton. And in 1984, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells had just been put in charge, and the old regime that had tried to support Burton was gone. And by that time, Burton said that he was just really tired of Disney. It was just a case of doing a bunch of stuff that nobody would ever see. It was kind of weird. I was like the weird relative that they'd let out occasionally and then lock back up in my room. And then, luckily... Also in 1984, actor Paul Rubens was looking for a director for a film idea he had been developing for many years called Pee-wee's Big Adventure, based on a character he had been portraying in various live shows. I love that show. I thought it was just so quirky. It is. Rubens was asking around for suggestions from his friends in the business, and actress Shelley Duvall, who had appeared in Frankenweenie, recommended the film and its director, and Rubens screened the film and liked what he saw, and he hired Burton, and that began a whole new career for Tim Burton. So he then directed four critically and financially successful live-action feature films in a row, that grossed more than $400 million. It was Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, and Edward Scissor's Hands. And Burton was now a hot commodity in Hollywood, but Burton was completely overwhelmed. And he wanted to return to a more personal project about which he was truly passionate. So he had his agent very quietly check into the status of the nightmare before Christmas in the hopes he might be able to get it back. But 
And he wasn't totally surprised by this. He discovered that Disney owned it completely, and they had no intention of releasing it. And Burton said, they own everything. There's this thing you sign when you work there which states that any thoughts you have during your employment are owned by the thought police. You signed your soul away in blood when you worked there. They owned your firstborn. I kind of gently asked, could I have it back? (laughs) So, a little bitterness, I think, in there. Yeah, it's true, though. (laughs) It is. And actually, that's not unusual. I've worked for companies where you sign the same kind of disclosure. Oh, yeah. It's it's actually extremely, extremely common. Um, I was just reading about another uh, person who was really bitter because the same thing happened to them. And it just... You know, that's that's what you get, though, when you want to work for that company that has the big name. Sometimes you don't get to own everything that you actually want and create, but hopefully you get to create bigger and better things because of it, like mm-hmm. well, what we're getting around to with this story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So David Hoberman, who was then president of Disney and Touchstone, said that he sent researchers down into the film files to see what they had, and they came back with the Nightmare Before Christmas material. And Disney chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg, who had spearheaded the renaissance of animation at Disney, starting with The Little Mermaid in 89, he saw this request from Burton as an opportunity to get into business with Burton and continue to reinforce Disney's domination of feature animation. And Burton was also concerned that all his films were done at Warner Brothers. And he didn't want to, you know, basically have all his eggs in one basket just one studio. But he didn't want Nightmare Before Christmas to fit in the same type of cartoon movies Disney had been having so much success with. And But um, Hoberman said that this was an opportunity for us to do business with Tim Burton and to say, we can think outside the envelope. We can do different and unusual things. I hope it goes out and makes a fortune, but if it doesn't, that doesn't negate the validity of the process. So Disney offered Burton a contractual promise of creative autonomy, but they insisted that the film be officially titled Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas to capitalize on his name as well as to distance it from a standard Disney film. So, so... um. Burton was the first and only filmmaker to have his name incorporated into the title of a film that he didn't make himself. He didn't write the script nor direct the film, although he was intimately involved with the style. And this is because Burton was unable unable to direct the film because he'd already committed to the feature film Batman Returns. And that was going into production at the same time. And he was already going into pre-production for Ed Wood. And in addition... Burton didn't want to be involved with that the time-consuming process of doing stop-motion animation, where maybe a minute's worth of footage could be produced in a single week. But he was adamant that the film would be done in stop-motion, just like those um, Rankin-Bass holiday specials that so many of us love. So he he also recalled when he lived in Burbank, where he grew up, that, you know, they didn't... In Southern California, they don't have the seasonal changes where it's determined by the changing color of the leaves and cold weather and snow and all that. So decorations are what determined the time of year. 
And he remembered that local merchants were so eager to increase sales that there was a melding of Halloween and Christmas decorations as advertisements in some stores um, sort of lengthened the shopping season. So it seemed natural in his mind for Halloween to intrude on Christmas and become a combination of his two favorite holidays. And he also felt that Burbank sort of looked bland. And But during the holidays, the lights and decorations made it seem a place full of wonder. And so, you know, Burton, of course, was friends with Henry Selleck, who had, and he, he had carved a niche for himself after leaving Disney with his stop-motion animation for MTV and some s- short films. And he had done some storyboarding for the Will Vinton claymation scenes in Disney's Return to Oz in 1985. So they both had similar artistic sensibilities. And Selleck had been an early supporter of Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, a whole decade earlier. So Burton offered him the uh, job of of directing the film and gave him a huge measure, uh, measure of creative freedom for the film. And Selleck realized this was his opportunity to direct his first length feature film. But didn't suspect how much he would be overshadowed by Burton's celebrity, not only in the title, but during the publicity during the release for the finished film. So Burton served as producer. He created the original idea. He came up with the initial designs for the film and some of its main characters. And people still consider it it an official part of Burton's filmography, but they often forget Selleck's um, significant work that went into that film. And Selleck said in an interview, um, it's as though he, meaning Burton, laid the egg and I sat on it and hatched it. He wasn't involved in a hands-on way, but his hands is in it. And it was my job to make it look like a Tim Burton film, which is not so different from my films. He said, we can collaborate because we often think of the same solution to a problem, which is why we want to hit it off at Disney. But he went on to say, I don't want to take away from Tim. He was not in San Francisco when he made it, when we made it, but he came up five times over two years and spent no more than eight or ten days in total. But we did communicate whilst he was filming in Los Angeles and he offered suggestions. It's more like he wrote a children's book and gave it to us and we went from there. But the bottom line is that it was Tim Burton's name before the title and that that was going to bring in more people than mine would have. So Selleck was responsible for a lot of the design, including the final design of Jack's suit. Burton's original design was that Jack would be dressed all in black. But Selleck saw that would be a major concern because the one-color suit would blend into the dark backgrounds and disappear. So he added the white stripes to make it a pinstripe suit, and that helped the figure stand out. And the film is filled with many of Burton's ideas, including having the different holiday doors in the forest. These doors were the iconic images of a pumpkin for Halloween, a decorated Christmas tree for Christmas, a turkey for Thanksgiving, a brightly colored egg for Easter, the green four-leaf clover for St. Patrick's Day, a red heart for Valentine's Day, and a red and white firework for July 4th, Independence Day. But to his credit, Burton was always effusive in giving Selleck credit, and he even once said... It is more beautiful than I imagined it would be, thanks to Henry and his talented crew of artists, animators, and designers. And, you know, I am 
And when I watch this film, I am just in awe of the technical work that went into this. Mm-hmm. And, and the, just the movements and the uh, because I've seen presentations on this at the Walt Disney Family Museum and they had a exhibit on stop motion animation so they had either they had some of the characters from this film there including a whole set of Jack's heads and um, one of you know and there was only a small number of them and they did presentations on how this film was made and it's amazing. And, you know, and they showed, you know, how the sets were and how they had to pop up in the middle of them, of Halloween Town, in mm-hmm. order to, you know, manipulate them. But just the story itself, I think just the whole, you know, how the 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 journeys all these characters take where, you know, poor Jack, he's so bored with Halloween because he's been doing it for who knows how many thousands of years and then he's so intrigued by christmas and he's like a little boy again but then it and he destroys that completely and then he but then it rekindles his love for his own holiday it's re-sparks his imagination exactly and you know and and then sally's journey from being attached to to the, the doctor and then you know and then she becomes the love of of jack and jack appreciates sally for who she is and realizes that she's always supported him and it's too bad they they didn't have the um ending that that you can hear in the soundtrack when santa revisits halloween town mm-hmm. and you know and there and and he and Jack are reminiscing and and Sally and Jack have had um, children who are all running around, little skeleton children all running around and all that. And I thought that would have been a very sweet ending. Yeah, you know. but there's, there's not much I would change about Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. It is uh, it's it is one of those just it's a complete phenomenon like i will one of the best memories i have that i will never forget is my 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 grandpa taking me to see that in the theaters uh, as much as he did not want to see it at all and <laughs> i i was enamored with it and you know i i i still love it to this day and everything uh, that has come and spawned from it like haunted mansion holiday and the merchandise the the fact that it gets the love now that it didn't get back then just just makes me so happy as that kid back in in 93 getting to see it for the very first time and and experiencing it and uh, it's it's why i love stop motion animation as much as i love nightmare before christmas i i love what has come because of that i mean obviously tim burton did not make it henry selick directed it uh but then tim burton went on to make his own stop motion movie later on with the corpse bride but meanwhile henry selick helped get uh, a little project off of the ground like uh, that he started he didn't start it but um travis knight and and uh the heir to nike and and that company that got off the ground and they started with henry Selick on on Coraline, and then have just 
taken off from there. I mean, their movies have never been financially uh, a complete blowout. Coraline, Paranorman, uh, Kubo, Box Trolls, um, uh, Missing Link. You know, they've they've always been really loved critically, but never never massive money makers. But each one has gotten more beautiful in his progressed drop stop motion animation uh just to a, to a complete different level so uh while while nightmare before christmas wasn't the first in this format by by any means as you mentioned you know Rankin bass really popularized it i feel like we are in a complete different place today solely because of nightmare before christmas mm-hmm. and uh it's just it, it's a great movie and it's so important for for what it established I agree. And, you know, even with all the gruesomeness in it, it's a cheerful little film, you know, <laughs> in, in, in a lot of ways. It's hilarious. So, uh, yeah, yeah it, it does have that darker side to it. But, uh, you know, they always find they find ways to find the humor in it. Like uh, the one line that Kylie and I will quote year round is when uh, Lock, Shock and Barrel bring in the Easter Bunny and unveil him as they're trying to kidnap Santa Claus. And and the the one character just goes bunny like we just <laughs> we will say that to each other year round and there's all that little that little slightly twisted humor throughout the entire movie that that helps take the darkness of it and and adds that lightness to it so mm-hmm. it's it's not just this I, I hate even throwing the word goth on it because that's what it gets like that that's what it gets kind of leveled as for a lot of people but it does have that gothic element to it but with a humorous uh, light-hearted side as well too i agree absolutely and so this this is usually the first film first or second film i watch in my lineup the other one it's will be my first or second film is the one that you're going to unwrap craig yeah and that begins with what has become the traditional start of the Christmas season in the United States, uh, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Exactly. And the first movie that I'm going to talk about, not in the same depth that you went into with uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, just because I actually really struggled to find a lot of facts about the making of the film. But it's not a massive surprise because uh, my movie was released in 1947, and that is Miracle on 34th Street, which you can Mm -hmm. find streaming on Disney Plus as much as they try to bury it deep down in the list of holiday movies. It is there and of course it was a 20th century fox movie so we have uh, the fox acquisition to thank for it being a part of the disney plus library but yeah just a a a wonderful christmas movie the original again not the uh remake the 1994 remake that you know they couldn't even get macy's to sign off on on utilizing the name for that movie but the the original that just is still beloved and cherished to this day starts off right on uh right on thanksgiving day with the macy's thanksgiving day parade which that's like uh, of all the history and and such that you can learn about this movie the one thing that they are proud uh to boast about on every single website and every book on this is that uh those scenes for the, the very start of the movie at the macy's thanksgiving day parade they were filmed actually live mm-hmm. during the parade so that the is, 1946 version of the parade it's, yeah thank you and so that's mm-hmm. not a you know that's not 
a- any sort of uh, fabrication on that. That that is the parade that you are seeing, which it's it's really uh, it, it adds an extra level of authenticity to the movie. And uh, it's it, it, right now we watch it a lot around Thanksgiving and Christmas time. But it's actually funny too. One of the things I learned when researching it that I didn't know before is that. It was not even marketed as a Christmas movie. It was marketed mm-hmm. as a romantic comedy because it was released in May and for the summer crowds when people were actually going to the theaters. So uh, this this fun romantic comedy that was released in in the beginning of summer has now become one of the most classic Christmas movies of all time that's in the academy film archive the national film registry list all of it uh multiple academy award women winning film uh it, it's just become this this classic holiday tale that i love watching every year and as i mentioned it starts on thanksgiving day parade uh santa had a little bit too much scotch miss if uh, <laughs> you were listening to our last episode oh, no, i don't i don't even think he was i think it was more rot gut kind of hooch there based on that bottle probably but <laughs> the marine o'hara you know slipped into her yeah coat. <laughs> santa had problems and uh and chris kringle played by edmund Gwynn, who did end up winning uh best actor supporting a <laughs> best supporting actor the academy award for that uh he's he's pretty irate by it and so he he goes to complain to doris played by maureen o'hara who if you've listened to any of our uh kind of movie episodes before when we talked about parent trap you would know her from that i know maureen o'hara even before the parent trap as a kid from one of my mom's favorite westerns mcclintock but uh just a classic actress and uh he chris kringle goes to complain to her about this santa and so what happens well he ends up in that santa's place and he is now the the flagship santa at macy's on 34th street which ironically ends up becoming the name but that wasn't the original name of the movie apparently it was uh the big heart which Mm -hmm. i think miracle on 34th street works a little bit better in my opinion but uh essentially uh Doris Maureen O'Hara again uh, her daughter that she's raising Natalie Wood who you probably know from uh, when she when she got older from Rebel Without a Cause um, uh, what's the one with, with John Wayne that was part of Great Movie Ride that I, it's literally fell from my mind I don't remember what, what um, scene they had in there I can see the character I can see the figure it's driving me nuts. It was just John Wayne in there, but she mm-hmm. plays. Uh, she was the one who was kidnapped in it, and it is just going to eat me inside. But then also, of course, West Side Story. Even though I mm-hmm. think she would probably like to uh, forget about that part of her career. Well, she's no longer alive, so that doesn't matter. We're not even going to get into that. That's too dark for a Christmas episode. Um, searchers. That's what I was going for. So, uh, anyways, going back to that. Doris is raising her daughter Susan, who she's raised to be very realist and not believe in in people like Santa Claus. But when when Susan gets to go see Chris Kringle at Macy's, he sees her speaking Dutch, sees him speaking Dutch to a little girl, and he then ends up believe she ends up believing that he actually is Santa Claus, and. 
uh, of course he is super super popular and and so much good spawns from from him being in that role however uh like any good movie not everything can go right so uh eventually santa has to go through a psychological evaluation uh you know like everyone should have to go through when they're playing a a store santa uh he has to go through it and he passes but ultimately they want to give santa the the kick out of the door they don't want chris kringle anymore but again he's very popular and uh it just it makes things more and more complicated well uh, tensions continue to arise, and at at one point when Santa Chris Kringle has a confrontation with with the psychologist that gives him the evaluation, he gets in a little bit of a physical uh, confrontation with him, and that uh, that leads to a lot of issues, including Chris Kringle uh, going into a uh, into a hospital of of sorts and that leads to the legal battle the the heart of this film the thing that i think most people uh know most about it where uh you know chris has to prove that he is in fact santa claus and how do you prove that and well i'm not going to give away that part don't give away the ending <laughs> if you haven't watched it it is one of uh, the there is a moment in the movie that gives me chills no matter how many times I see it. And it's like, it's impossible to not tear up a little bit. And, uh, it's like any good movie from that time. They, they try to have a happy ending and I'm not going to say what ends up being a happy ending, but, uh, it's just, it, it's so wonderful. It is such a nice movie. And if it's not part of your holiday, must watches then i i don't know i don't know what is because it should be this is absolutely one of my favorites uh, films i mean top three favorite holiday films and um i did find a few historic facts on this and uh, first of all i love this too it's full of classic hollywood stars and um and and has to be one of the best portrayers of santa claus ever because he just embodies the spirit you know of santa so well and he put himself into this because to achieve the physical look of the character he you know that scene in the movie where natalie wood tugs on his beard it's real because he grew it you know he grew it himself and he also gained 30 pounds before filming to fill himself out and so he doesn't only convince audience members that he might that, that you know us watching the film that he might be Santa, but the cast as well. Because in her biography, Natalie Wood, um, according to her biography, Natalie Wood believed all the way through filming that Edmund Gwen, Gwen was the real Santa Claus, and it wasn't until the rap party that she realized he was just an actor. Oh yes, so, I yeah, uh, he he is. In my opinion, he is the best Santa Claus who has ever been in a movie. And when we were growing up, a lot of times we would go to Atlanta uh, for Thanksgiving at my my aunt and uncle's house. And when we would go there, we would go to the, the Macy's in Atlanta because we had to see Santa. And the Santa they had there was, you know, he looked just like santa from miracle on 34th street and so that was that was the santa look 
Like that's mm-hmm. we did not we don't think of Santa Claus as you know how you see him in Rudolph, but it was like Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street that inspired how we expected to see Santa Claus from there on out. So it truly is an iconic look and oh, a, just the perfect actor for it. And you mentioned how the you know the the opening was filmed during the actual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in 1946 and her autobiography, I think it's called Tis Real. Um, Maureen O'Hara wrote, those sequences like the one with Edmund riding in the sleigh and waving to the cheering crowd were real-life moments in the 1946 Macy's Parade. And she said it was a mad scramble to get all the shots we needed, and we got to do each scene only once. It was bitterly cold that day, and Edmund and I envied Natalie and John Payne, who were watching the parade from a window. And speaking of the windows, in the film, there are because now... I need listeners to go on a little research project for us. <laughs> in the film, there are multiple window displays that can be that can be seen through the front of Macy's um, department store, and these were designed specifically for the film. And they're incredibly detailed dioramas, and Macy's kept them for a long time. They, they, they were staples at the Macy's store. After filming was complete, though, they were sold to the beloved you know, New York City toy store FAO Shorts, and they stayed at their Fifth Avenue store until Schwartz sold them. And somehow the displays made their way to Marshall and Isley Bank of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And supposedly they're still there, but the bank was bought over the years in a successive buyouts, and it's now BMO Harris Bank. In in my research, because I had to find out if this bank still existed, and that's mm-hmm. I tracked it down to Harris Bank. So, if we have any listeners in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, you've got to <laughs> tell us if these displays are still there. Yep. So um, I know there has to be people listening from Milwaukee. Yeah. And and to to achieve authenticity with the sets and locations, the filmmakers wanted to shoot on site at both Macy's and Gimbel's department stores in New York City. Those are the two big stores at the time. And the stores were hesitant at first. This is fascinating. They didn't want to immediately sign up for the filmmaking project. So before saying yes, both stores wanted to see the finished film. So this meant that the filmmakers had to completely cut, edit the entire film and finish it and risk the store saying no. Yeah. Which would have destroyed the film. But luckily, they loved the final project, so they gave their approval. And so a significant portion of the film was was you know made at the actual Macy's and Gimbel's locations in New York City rather than constructed sets, which caused all kinds of problems because the amount of camera equipment, lighting, and, and everything else they needed meant that the studio needed so much more power than the store itself could not... The store just couldn't provide it. So the cords for the equipment had to stretch all the way down to the basement of the store to where an additional power supply had been set up. And um, electrical problems weren't the only issue. Um, The winter that they had filmed in was one of the harshest on record with absolutely freezing temperatures. So the cameras literally froze and they were unable to work. And this was true in... um, 
one of the scenes that's filmed in Long Island. I'm trying to be really vague here. <laughs> so, um, but that's where in that final scene, and that final scene where Natalie Wood um, realizes that her gift is that the Santa has provided a gift. That was real. That was not a set, and it exists today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and at, although they've they've you know remodeled it a bit, but that's where the f- cameras froze. It was so cold. So the a lady Vaughn Malay who lived like next door, she allowed the crew to come into her home to keep warm. And Marina O'Hara was so grateful that she took Malay and her husband out for a fancy dinner as a gift to show her appreciation. So, um, anyway, and then also in her autobiography, O'Hara remembered just how much fun that she had with her co-stars. She said, each evening when we weren't working, um, Edmund, Gwen, John, and I went for a walk up Fifth Avenue, and Natalie had to go to bed, but we didn't. And we stopped and window shopped at all the stores, which were beautifully decorated for the holidays. And she said, Edmund especially loved those nights and acted more like the kid who might be getting the presents instead of Santa who would be giving them. And I got such a big kick out of seeing the expressions of window dressers when they saw Edmund peering in at them I knew then that he was going to make a big splash of Santa Claus everyone felt the magic on the set and we all knew we were creating something special and um, and then the, the interesting thing is is that I guess um, her co-star John according to O'Hara he really believed in this film and he wanted to do a sequel so in her autobiography tis herself she said that we talked about it for years and eventually he even wrote a screenplay and he was going to send it to her but he died before he could get around to it so she never saw it and she would often wondered what happened to it hmm. yeah so uh, anyway so so that's so that's too bad about that one yeah, it's not everything ever gets to happen like we want it to. <laughs> no, no. No, that is sad. For my next film, I need to mix up a cocktail like a Manhattan, an old-fashioned, or even a Scotch Mist. You know, Walt's Disney's favorite. Because we're going to watch Desk Set on Hulu. It de- depends on your subscription level, um, whether you have it or not. But it's also available on Apple+. Plus. I discovered. And this technically is, you're not going to find it under the holiday list, but a big chunk of this film takes place from Thanksgiving all the way into the new year. And it has the absolutely best 1940s, well, 1950s office party that you would ever want to see. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and. Anyway, and so what this is about, this is a, this is an, a, a romantic comedy starring Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. And it was released in 1957. It was the first color film that Spencer and um, Katherine Hepburn were in. Mm-hmm. Spencer Tracy, Tracy and Hepburn were in. And it's one of, the interesting thing is, it's one of the probably first films to deal with the anxiety that office workers were going through as the first computers 
were coming to be. And and it's sort of funny, now what we know about computers and what they call the electronic brain, um, you know, was coming in. And it was, this apparently was based on the Univax computer um, that I don't know a whole lot about. But I guess that was a computer back in the day. And in an early scene, Catherine Hepburn makes reference to the fact that she had just taken a, she didn't been down to IBM to see uh, to see a demonstration of their electronic brain. So, um, so Spencer Tracy portrays um, William Sumner. He's an efficiency expert, and where this takes place is it was um, it, it was it was um, he he goes to the film takes place in the federal broadcasting network although the exterior shots of it are rockefeller center new york city the headquarters of nbc so but this is fbc and Catherine hepburn plays bunny watson and she's in charge of the reference library which is responsible for researching and answering the questions on all kinds of topics and she and and that's just a running gag of all of the things that all the different departments and studios and all that are calling in for. Uh, there's a running gag, like uh, the Christmas scene of the, of everybody wanting to know what are the names of the reindeer. Um, there's there's a whole thing about uh, you know the um, oh the, uh, the uh, poems that they want and odd little facts and things like that, and they can immediately run around and find them. And Joan Blondell is in this, Dina Merrill, uh, the actress who um, would go on to play uh, Leave it to Beaver's teacher in that television series. It must have been one of her first roles in there. (laughs) And also, what's happening in here is that Catherine Hepburn, Bunny Watson is dating network executive Mike Cutler, Gig Young. They've been dating for seven years. And she keeps waiting for him to drop the question, pop the question. And uh, he's clueless or he's so involved in his job and all that that he um, just never gets around to it. And and the Joan Blondell character is always, asks, always telling her, you know, you need to play um, hard to get. And all that. Well, Richard Sumner, Spencer Tracy, is brought in, and he because he's going to see how the library functions and to figure out how to ease the transition of bringing the, his computer Emirac into the FBC into the research library, and it's already been introduced in payroll. Problem is, when it got introduced in the payroll, about two thirds of the people were let go. And so when and so this is kept a big secret. The head of the network says, "I don't want anybody knowing what this is because you know because he says when they find out computers are coming, employees jump to conclusions the machines are going to be replaced are going to replace them." And he wants to keep it a secret. We also find out later on there's a financial reason they want to keep it a secret as well. So Spencer Tracy's just sort of haunting the the research library for um months as he's do, getting ready for uh you know emirac coming in and anyway well of course secrets cannot be kept very well because bunny watson does her homework her research and she figures out pretty much what's happening and then um 
Anyway, and so, of course, fearful for their jobs, Bunny and her team set out to show that a computer cannot replace them. Well, you know, hilarity ensues, <laughs> of course. Oh, there's also a couple con- romantic confrontations, um, you know, and I, I don't want to give it away because it's just so... I just love how the movie unfolds. But you've got to watch this. I, I, Carol and I always had this in our Christmas list because of the Christmas party scene. It is a hoot. This is basically the rule when when the Spencer Tracy character Richard Sumner asks, "What are the rules?" And it's um, anything goes. He's told as long as no one locks the doors. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, there's champagne flowing. There's music. There's fraternization. I mean, there's everything going on. This these are days we will never see again. And are we better off for it? I don't know. No, probably not. (laughs) Probably not. But those scenes are just so wonderful. And there's also a scene that takes place in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, um, where Richard Sumner gets locked in. It's after hours. Bunny's working late. Richard Sumner was reading... um, a book in the stacks and Bunny doesn't realize he's been locked in and there's this whole hilarious thing that that happens in her apartment she invites him back for dinner and um, all that Th- it, this is just such a wonderful film and I love the age you know mid-century modern you know uh, uh, all the sets and all the costumes because I, 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 I love the fashion of this era and um this is just a fun film. It's uh, there's a lot of double uh, there's a lot of double entendres in those under the breath comments that made Tracy and Hepburn films so much fun, and 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 you know they just had such great chemistry, you know together, and that that's definitely true in this film. And it just looks like everybody had a great time in this, you know, making this film, and. Um, I don't know. I, I I can watch this over and over again. You can watch it at any time, but I just think that you know because of the Christmas scene, this is this is the this is the perfect time to watch it. Yeah. So I, um, you've been you've talked to me about this at least twice before, and I still haven't added it to my list. I need to, and I, I especially need to uh, after I saw what the screenplay was written by uh and mm-hmm. you know it's written by phoebe and henry efron which i you know i i don't think i've ever pinged it before um but a lot of people know at least one of their their children uh the very famous nora efron who has gone on to make many 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 amazing uh movies over over the years and uh she she sprung from them writing it so clearly she had uh she had great mentors with um with with what she was doing and you know just uh, sad that she's not around anymore so it's I, I still watch sleepless in seattle every now and then um which which could also technically fall into the the christmas list even though not this one it doesn't go along with that but um yeah it's uh 
I, I love finding those connections in movies. So I yeah. really need to give Desk Set a shot. You you would love this. Um, oh, and Sue Randall, she is the actress. She plays Ruthie, and she went on to be Leave It to Beaver's teacher. And um, and Dina Merrill is Sylvia. Pe- Peg is Joan Blondell. What's interesting too is that Hollywood studios, apparently all the major studios had similar research departments that fielded all these questions. Uh, um, like MGM's research department was in four buildings in the back, back lot, and it, it had 20,000 books and 250,000 clippings, all cross referenced on 80,000 index cards. And apparently at its peak, they answered 500 questions a day. And so, and so, oh, and this, so that's what this is all based on, this department. And this is also a 20th Century Fox film, which means it's owned by Disney. Yeah. So I'm hoping that at some point this is going to make it onto, um, to, you know, make it on the Disney Plus at yeah. some point. Or whatever, you know, or some other entity that yeah. they're going to own with all their reorg of Disney Plus and all that kind of stuff. It the least so. plays uh, a more solid spot on Hulu. Yes. Yeah, I hope so. So, um, anyway, also, if you're into fashion, you, you're going to love all of Catherine Hepburn's clothes. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, she has all these high collars and cinched waists and all that. And, um, <laughs> I mean, really beautiful. Yeah. So, um, you know, velveteen jackets and all of that. And um, so, anyway. but So, anyway, I love this film. And so, I, I hope if you haven't watched this film, definitely add it to your list. Um, you're going to enjoy it. And, and it's very funny as well. Yeah. I cannot wait to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Well, after three full-length films, it's time for a short feature. And, Craig, is this the one that you watch as you decorate your tree? It's not the one I watch when I'm decorating my tree necessarily, but it is actually one of the uh, the shorts I watch when I really need to get into the Christmas spirit. And that is the 1952 uh, well, I, Pluto or Mickey Mouse cartoon. I guess... Uh, I, I guess now we we look at it as um, we we look at it more as a uh, I believe now it's labeled as a Mickey Mouse cartoon, but originally mm-hmm. it might have been a Pluto cartoon, and that's kind of swapped throughout the years. But yeah, it's uh, Pluto's Christmas tree, which uh, of course is Pluto and Mickey going to uh, get their Christmas tree and then hijinks ensuing when uh, the tree they just happened to choose also comes along with a pair of chipmunks that we all know and love, Chip and Dale. And, well, you know, nothing can be easy when when Chip and Dale get involved. But uh, this is this is just one of the, the greatest Christmas Disney shorts that there is. Uh, it's it's perfect. A lot of the merchandise that you see nowadays that uh, is going for that mid-century modern look is uh, has a lot to thank from this era of Mickey Mouse and and even this cartoon in general. And uh, we're we're just all the better for it. And uh, the short, of course, is uh, directed by Jack Hanna, and it's one of the. Uh, one of the little shorts that he actually directed that wasn't starring Donald Duck, 
despite mm-hmm. his uh, short appearance in the end of it, but uh, still a Jack Hanna outing. And of course, all of our our favorite animators and, and Disney employees had an impact on it. Freddie Moore, Bill Justice, Blaine Gibson, Neil Gracie. Uh, it's uh, again, like like every great great Disney cartoon, you can just go out and you can pick out at least ten names that you know from from hopefully this show or or just uh, what how you enjoy Disney in general. But like I said, the plot is uh, Mickey and Pluto are going out for their Christmas tree, and uh, this is in conjunction with Chip and Dale looking for acorns in the forest. They started a little late; it's already a little cold. They probably should have been. <laughs> pretty deep into hibernation but uh anyways they go to hide into a tree and well yep mickey does chop down that tree but luckily they get a nice warm home inside and uh unfortunately for them you know it is a christmas tree so mickey mouse wants to decorate that tree uh, along with pluto but pluto quickly finds out that there's some uh there, there's some weird stuff happening with the the tree as it's being decorated. There's a a light going on and off in there, and that that really that really gets him all set up. And then then Dale starts getting into his brain by throwing ornaments off the tree that, of course, he has to to catch or they're going to break, and everything's going to go bad. And Mickey has to step in and get angry at Pluto for it because you know Pluto always has to. Always has to be on on the downside of it, and you know that it just keeps going on and on as as Pluto gets into this battle and just gets angrier and angrier and angrier until he's just completely deep in this tree trying to go after the chipmunks. And you know, as Mickey has seen this, his the only thing he can be is super angry at pluto but how can he be angry then when he also um he also sees the chipmunks and and you know it's the holiday season everything uh, you have to be able to forgive and uh it it ends up being a happy ending with Mm -hmm. with carolers outside so uh the carolers of course being donald goofy Minnie, and uh everyone starts singing and it's just it's just the perfect perfect disney cartoon with christmas involved and it like i said it's the one i watch to get me into the holiday spirit because it just it it just has that vibe to it it's not it's not even necessarily santa related even though there is one of my favorite gags when um when when dale goes to the fireplace and he hurries up and takes one of the santa candles and switches out the beard and the the scarf to try to to or the beard and the hat to try to disguise himself from Pluto. There's there's that little bit into it, but generally it's you know it's just your basic Christmas decorations, snowing, Christmas trees. It's not it's not overtly uh, Santa related like the rest of the stuff we're going to talk about. So it's easy to to kind of get in there anytime during the holiday season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love. Uh, I, I, this is one of my favorites, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it's an interesting drawing style for Mickey. But that this was that '50s sort of look for him, I guess. So um, anyway, but um, yeah, and this is the first time Mickey encountered Chip and Dale. So he had oh, yeah. never run yeah. into them before. 
too. And then, and then in 1954, Little Golden Books published a version of this. It was called Donald Duck's Christmas Tree. Same exact plot as as Pluto, as Pluto's Christmas Tree, but it has Donald Duck in it instead of Mickey Mouse. Oh, that's convenient. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So anyway, but yeah, this is just a, this is a fun film. I, I think when we talked about it before, we always said we wish they'd make those little candles. I yep. You know, and, but then have like Ch- a Chip and Dale version along with you know a couple Santa ones. That's <laughs> still waiting to this very yeah. very day. Still waiting for that. Yeah, yeah, or even like little ceramic versions that look like candles or something like that. So. Okay, well. I watch multiple versions of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol each year. I read the story every year. I'm reading it right now. But And a film that I added to my annual holiday list last year is The Man Who Invented Christmas that's currently on Hulu. And the, some some people think it's, you know, Man Who Invented Christmas, you know, when... Um, the eight, in 1823, a visit from St. Nicholas of the night before Christmas was published. and um, But I think that much of what we celebrate, what we've come to associate with Christmas, can be, can be traced back to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. The Man Who Invented Christmas is based on Les Statterford's book of the same title. And the story introduces us to a 32-year-old Charles Dickens who wrote the literary literary classic in just six weeks. And this is because he needed the money. And he needed needed it quick. And he needed to write something fast. (laughs) And the film is set in Victorian England at a time when the Christmas holiday had become unpopular. Although there are some literary historians who say that the celebration was just starting to be go on the rise again. But for the most part, it wasn't the celebration that um, we've, we come to believe it is from that story. Um, now, Dan Stevens, who's best known for his you know big role as Matthew Crawley in Downton Abbey, and the prince in Disney's live-action version of Beauty and the Beast, plays Charles Dickens. And the film portrays Charles Dickens in a financial and creative crisis after the commercial failure of Martin Chuzzlewit, which is a huge book. So he's inspired to pen a ghost story when he hears the stories that uh, that are spun by Tara, who's played by Anna Murphy. She's a teenage um, housemate who's just come from England and is working in his household. And so she's sharing these stories from Ireland with her uh, with his children. And so the movie opens with Dickens on a successful United States lecture tour. And this is to show he was a huge celebrity, and he was back in the day, especially in the United States. Um, back in London, though, he's financially overextended. Uh, he's being mocked by Thackeray, an, another fellow writer. Um, so he decides quite late in the year to write a Christmas novella, and he has to issue it himself because his usual publishers reject the idea because they tell him that the holiday is passé. So the script's written by Susan Coynes, and so in her script, she has Dickens discover the book's central cal- characters all around him, sort of like Dorothy in Kansas, where she dreams you know, the people that she's met on the farm and all that, um, she dreams them into Oz. 
Um, so Tiny Tim is the writer's nephew. Ebenezer Scrooge, who's brilliantly played by Christopher Plummer, is a miser, first encountered at a funeral that has no mourners, no other mourners. And Tara, the Irish maid, well, she gets a second job. She's the ghost of Christmas past. Um, there's also a there's ghosts from Charles Dickens' pasts. They, he, they, there's flashbacks to his life, like when he, when twelve-year-old Charles Dickens had to work in a factory when his father was sentenced to debtor's prison, and then the grown-up Dickens finds the nerve to visit the now abandoned building, and the place serves as his personal haunted house. In real life, the factory had been torn down by this time in Dickens' life, but this is a pivotal scene in the film. So, having escaped the, his childhood, the movie Dickens has become sort of a Scrooge himself. He has a house he can't afford, full of children who are a costly burden. He's angered by his father's heedless spending, who, is, who inspired, you know, he's the macabre character in another book, and that was an inspiration for Dickens. He's also quite crabby when he's scribbling, and he unleashes his irritation on everybody around him. He's also overwhelmed by the ceaseless traffic that just coming and going through his home office. And his wife and staff know better than to disturb him, but it's his characters from the novel that are intruding and disturbing as as Dickens is trying to, to, you know, write out the story and especially come up with how all of these plot lines that he's created, how are they all going to come together at the end? Um, now, Man Invented Christmas, it's not meant for historical purists um, because it's not history. Um, in an interview, Stephen said about how accurate the film is. Um, frankly, whether it's historically accurate, I'm not concerned about. I was interested in that moment of the creative process. Watching a great man struggle, to me, that's dramatically and comedically interesting. Certainly, I was not to keen to play Dickens as a bearded old sage. He also expressed an interest in Miriam Margoyle's, Margoyle's theory that Dickens was bipolar, saying there were moments when he was bleak and depressive, but I think there were moments when he was great fun to be around, very silly and playful. And you can see that. I've read most of Dickens' books, and, and you can see that definitely in his books. So I can understand how that um, theory might be out there. I found this. I find this film just fascinating. I I would have loved it if as a sequel to this film they took all those characters that were haunting and tormenting uh, you know Dan Stevens Dickens as he tried to write this book. I wish then they would have filmed a Christmas carol with maybe with the Dickens character narrating it. Mm-hmm. I, I I this is how good this film was is I just wanted more of it. I wanted to see them actually act out the book. Once we saw, you know, this sort of uh, dramatic recreation of how the book was written, um, I I didn't think I would like it, and I, and I because I am a bit of a historical purist, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and this is this is a must see for me now every year. Yeah, I. I remember when it came out in theaters and I kind of 
push it to the side that year and I, I still haven't watched it because of it, but I was happy to see when it was on Hulu, and I I told myself I am adding it to my list this year. So uh, you definitely you have me hyped up for it. I'm very excited to watch it. Yeah, you. I think you're really going to like it. So you have to watch Desk Set and The Man Invented Christmas, and then tell me, you know, when we get back from our Christmas break, uh, yeah. what you think thought of both of those. I absolutely will. <laughs> <laughs> so. So now that we've watched a film depicting how Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol, we're going to watch Craig's favorite film version of A Christmas Carol. And I, I think it would. I, there's no surprise to it. You all know it's Muppet Christmas Carol. And I, I oh, think it's, it's not that one on FX. It's, it's not. You <laughs> talked about that in, in a little bit of depth before we got started. We're not going to go there just because it's not appropriate for our younger <laughs> listeners no, on dark. here. Uh, but uh, I, it, the thing about Muppet Christmas Carol for me is obviously it is not the most authentic to the Christmas Carol story, but it actually, in some ways, it is more authentic than a lot of other retellings mm-hmm. uh, to agree. the actual story. And uh, so I really, really, really enjoyed for that. But um, a Muppet Christmas Carol, I feel like it's kind of become a lot of people's favorite version of of the story as years have gone by. I think a lot of that is people my age who who grew up with Muppet Christmas Carol, watching it over and over again, and have now adopted that as the the go to version of this movie and. You know, there, of course, have been amazing versions to come before Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, the uh, the 1946 version, I want to say. Oh, is that the Alistair Sims one? Yes, I believe mm-hmm. that it's 46. And, like, that's... There are, there are so many good iterations. of. I, I love the George C. Scott one as also, well. Also fantastic. And even then, offshoots of this this movie uh scrooged with with bill murray is hilarious um it's really it's really hard to screw up uh, a christmas carol and you know if anyone could do it it was robert zemeckis and uh, (laughs) oh yeah carry together they screwed it up but (laughs) for the most part uh you know besides fx and robert zemeckis it's very hard to screw it up and I, I just feel like of of people my age now, Muppet Christmas Carol is the definitive version. So it shocked me to find out that as beloved as it is in my heart, that it actually opened to not necessarily great reviews. Like Rotten Tomatoes, going back to record the reviews when they were when it was released, uh, they they call it just a seventy six percent positive as of right I now. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, hmm. yeah. It's so not. Not stunning. And, you know, back in the day at that time, Siskel and Ebert was, they were the go-to reviewers. Ebert gave it three out of four stars. I always liked him better, but Siskel gave it a thumbs down. And the only thing he liked from it was Michael Caine. Of course, because he played it straight. He played it like he would for the Royal Shakespearean Theater. Yeah, and that... It's exactly what he said when he was he was hired on the job. He would do it, but he's not going to play it as, uh, hey, I'm hanging out here with the Muppets being all goofy. He took it seriously, and that's that is the majority of what sells this movie. And another thing that sells it for me is is the music. And even that, 
got a lot of hits to it. I know the Chicago Tribune, uh, they said that Paul Williams' songs in it were unmemorable, which is just like... And Variety said the same thing, too, that it just criticized it. And that's like... That just hits me over the head with that because I... like. Uh, one more sleep till Christmas to me is one of the greatest Christmas songs in in my opinion. It's in my top five. Um, the it feels like Christmas sung by the ghost of Christmas present, a classic Christmas song. Uh, when love is gone, we'll, I'll get there in a second. Uh, mm-hmm. Cut from the movie, ultimately, but still out there and available. A beautiful, beautiful song that helps further the story and. Cut from it, but still resurfaced and continually around and and helps the complete ending of the movie actually make sense because the last song you hear in the movie before the credits is when love is found. Mm-hmm. So they have a mo- they have a song in there that makes the movie makes no sense when it's cut out because of how it they chose to end it. There's so many questions I have still to this day about all of that, but um, it, it's just it. it made me question everything when i read that it wasn't wasn't that big hit that i felt like it was but i i feel like you know audiences have embraced it and uh it's you know uh, the, it had a lot not going for it when when it was made because uh at this point when it's it's getting started jim henson's gone he's he's no longer alive uh his son brian has taken over taken over the muppets and henson and he's he's still got to keep it going and this is the first thing that really comes across our plate is doing doing a muppet version of the christmas carol and and they're going at it with the idea that it's just going to be a tv movie but uh all the all the pieces just start to fall in place to make it something bigger to to get it into to theaters you know uh, jerry jewell who was the head writer of the muppet show and wrote on fraggle rock and other muppet properties they brought him in to help help really tell the story and and they came up with the twist of you know instead of just playing the story let's have let's have charles dickens narrate it and let's have gonzo be charles dick charles dickens in it and uh it just it just all kept coming together further on and and then not having Muppets portray every single role, not having them portray Ebenezer Scrooge and a lot of the other human characters, not having them even portray the ghosts by having new original uh, mm-hmm. creations portray the ghosts. Just all these decisions really came together to to make this incredible movie that I don't have to talk about the plot of it. We all we all should know the plot of A Christmas Carol at this point unless you are very very young. But for me what makes this stand out more than more than anything else again is is Michael Caine as Scrooge who just is a powerhouse steals the show, you know, singing for the first time ever in a movie but selling every little bit of it. Uh, this was the first role that Steve Whitmire, um, in, in a movie, voiced Kermit the Frog, who, of course, was voiced by Jim Henson before. So he's taking over as Kermit, and he's part of the reason why we now, you know, why the new transition into Matt Vogel doing Kermit's voice has been all really difficult for a lot of people because we. We knew and loved Steve Whitmire really starting with Muppet Christmas Carol and uh, and just continued to, to enjoy his his take on Kermit. But 
Uh, it's it just it has all those classic Muppet, Muppet performers: Frank Oz, Jerry Nelson, Dave Goltz, and uh, I think more than anything, I love that they didn't hold back from the darker elements from the story. Uh, if you mm-hmm. tell me that the ghost of of Christmas future, Christmas yet to come, is not terrifying still to this day, this this giant grim reaper uh, costume, I, I don't know who you are. It is it is terrifying and then the bleakness of the entire story of when the ghost of christmas future is in there it's just it is it's gritty and even then like i i'm still creeped out by the ghost of christmas past the the young ethereal floating puppet that just it's you know the the past isn't always pleasant and that puppet could also not be completely past pleasant at the same time too so it, it works with it on that that realm too there's just there's so much depth to muppet christmas carol and uh it, but at the end of the day it's still this light-hearted fun joyous movie and i i i can't imagine going a year without watching it i watch this in the middle of the summer it's that no, important I, to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, I and I like that this is the only film where Charles Dickens is the narrator as he is in the book. And cuz in early in the book he says I'm standing uh, close to you in spirit at your elbow. Mm-hmm. You know, something like that. I mean, you know, um as he's relating this story and Almost all of what Gonzo says is directly from the book, except for his, you know, banter with, you know, Rizzo, his sidekick, who, yeah. who's not in the story, <laughs> the original story. What? Um, <laughs> but, but what's funny is, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter the other day, but, you know, the longtime gopher for The Muppet Show, Scooter, was originally supposed to appear as the Ghost of Christmas Past, and Miss Piggy and Gonzo were going to be the ghost of christmas present and yet to come but then that was scrapped and you know they had you know in favor of new muppet creations um so piggy was recast as mrs cratchit and gonzo was charles dickens but scooter was cut completely and did you see the twitter post scooter claimed he was so enamored with christmas films that he missed his cue and was left out of the film and i just thought oh this was some this was scooter's publicist i didn't see that but that is yeah it was it was like yesterday or something that's on the muppet twitter and i thought well that came out of nowhere Uh, that's (laughs) yeah that's passionate people who were uh, working (laughs) behind the scenes on social media i love that that's great yeah and the way they did the ghost, uh, this or the spirit of Christmas past, they 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 sub- the puppeteers or Muppeteers were submerged with the Muppet in a tank of baby oil, mm-hmm. backed by a green screen to record the performance. But that got too expensive, so they had to switch to water in order to get all the shots that they needed. Yeah, and um, and I I guess I should mention it since I already teased it, but. I'm happy, at least as of now, to announce that we hopefully will one day see When Love is Gone added back into the movie. Um, mm-hmm. Just very recently, Brian Henson, uh, who's been doing a string of press uh, for for different projects. Uh, he, I know he's been talking that Dinosaurs, the TV series, is coming to Disney+. Plus. Um, uh, Earth to Ned is getting their second season on Disney Plus as well, so lots of good stuff. But then he also talked him up at Christmas Carol because Disney finally found 
the master, the video master of it and the negative. And so the problem is for when the love, when love is gone is that, uh, it got cut from the theatrical release, uh, thanks to everyone's favorite Jeffrey Katzenberg. Yeah. He did not. He thought it was too slow. Yep. And thought and and too Muppet free. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, and I feel like we've heard this story before, um, in the same, uh, in that same sense. But, uh, anyways, he they had it completely cut from the movie, but then it did end up back in the VHS of the movie. So, like, when I saw it in theaters, of course, not in there, but then when I watched it every single year growing up uh, on VHS, it was in there. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then with DVD releases, uh, one of the DVD releases, it was as it, they had a full screen version of the movie where it was included but then they had a widescreen version of the movie where it wasn't included and i think it made it on laser disc it made it as a part of it and as of the time it was the only widescreen version of it um i think it's on disney plus right now as a deleted scene in the extras but i haven't oh, okay i don't watch it on disney plus i watch my own hard copy so i only i only know what i have with it but uh it just it was kind of in that limbo where it wasn't it wasn't the original version and i guess i read somewhere that there is a digital copy of it where they claim that it was in widescreen and high def but basically the original copy of the song that they had uh the best it could be is from laserdisc so with that being said, it could never be truly 1080 for Blu-ray or even above that to 4K. They needed to have the, the master, the negative, to be able to actually get it to, to 1080 quality for Blu-ray or beyond with 4K. And Disney had not been able to find it for years and years and years. But uh, they finally surprised Brian Henson, who asked about it every so often. They they finally surprised him and said, actually, we do have it and we are restoring it. We're restoring the entire movie. And he doesn't know when it will be available, if it would be a release, if it's just going to be on Disney Plus, if it'll come this Christmas, if it'll be next Christmas. No one really knows, but uh, they are working on getting an entire cut of the movie remastered with that original negative in place for when love is gone all in it so it can be shown in its entirety in the way it was supposed to and that is just super super exciting that is that is exciting yeah there were two other songs i guess that were cut but they weren't they were cut from the script but they were never um filmed yeah. but they're on the soundtrack <laughs> and they're, they're not great the one is the uh bunsen honeydew and beaker song um yeah room in your heart yeah, yeah. and i i like humming along to it but it's it's not good <laughs> it got left off yeah. for a reason <laughs> yeah and then sam the eagle scrooge's headmaster he sang chairman of the board also not not yeah. great you know it's so <laughs> the stuff that made it in from paul williams who of course did the original music on uh the muppet movie that uh coming back to do muppet christmas carol he knocked it out of the park with all the songs that ended up in but the the couple that got cut it was for very good reasons (laughs) what i didn't know when i was doing my research is that in that scene one more sleep till christmas and 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 Kermit's staring up at the sky, and a shooting star streaks by. I guess Brian Henson said this was a nod to 
the Muppet movie, where a, star, a shooting star flies over Kermit, and now it's a re, this is a, a recurring element to frame Kermit with a shooting star. So they've done it on Muppet Treasure Island, mm-hmm. Kermit's Swamp Years. It's a very merry Muppet Christmas movie. I don't think I ever. I'm, oh, I think I did see that, and then the Muppets. Good. So I I didn't know that. That's a beautiful moment. It's time again for another Christmas short. One of my favorites on Disney Plus is a story that is sort of a prequel to the journey of Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem for the first Christmas Day, and that is The Small One. And this was released on December 16th, 1978, with a theatrical reissue of Pinocchio. Again, one of my favorite Disney films. This is the closest Don Bluth ever got to his own production at the Disney studio. And he's credited as the producer and director. And the origins of the small one actually goes all the way back to the 90s, 1960s. The story was announced to appear in the debut season of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color when the Disney TV series changed networks and went over to NBC. And... The Christmas Tale had been popular for decades with many people remembering the annual retelling of the story by Bing Crosby on his radio show in the 40s and 50s. And so the film was brought back into production over at the Disney Studios when one of the newer generation of storymen, Pete Young, discovered the book by Charles Tazewell that was in the Disney Library. And he worked on a storyboard at home and brought it to Ron Miller, And Young had said, what struck me was the story's warmth and the relationship between the boy and downtrodden donkey is very emotionally involving. And Miller liked what he saw and thought it would be a very good training film. Uh, So to help polish the board slightly, Miller had veteran Disney board artist Vance Gary work with Young. And after several delays, the production began in 1977. And this was the first Disney production created exclusively by the new generation of animators at the studio, except for one old-timer, the directing animator Cliff Nordberg. And this, they worked on this in order to prove their ability that they could create a successful film. So, um, so, so Don Bluth was put in charge of the small one. He laid out the entire film and generally gave the animators the first and last drawing of each scene. And the small one is one of the rare religious stories by Walt Disney Animation, and it tells a Christmas story. And so, ordered by his father to sell his old small donkey, whose name's Small One, a Hebrew boy in ancient Israel takes up the donkey to the Jerusalem market. Um, But he can't find any buyers there for Small One. Well, except one who wants to... um, Wants, wants the donkey for his hide. Um, so the boy is about to give up when he meets a kind man named Joseph, and Joseph buys small one and uses him to take his pregnant wife Mary to Bethlehem. And um, what's interesting is is that there's a lot of voices in here that we know, but we've talked in previous shows about Hal Smith, who is... Um, who was on the Andy Griffith show. He played Otis, the town drunk. He and, and But he had this huge career as a voiceover actor of a lot of cartoons that I grew up with. He, he voiced the auctioneer in this, um, in, in this film. So, anyway. Now, 
element there are elements in here that would become standard for Don Booth's later films. Um, there's the touching scenes at the beginning where you realize the boy and donkey are more than friends; they're family. And Bruce Bluth frequently in all his films likes to show friends being very true and warm to each other, and you know people that would sacrifice themselves for their friendship. Um, then next is. The, comes the horror and the dark side. And so there, the Tanner that I mentioned, his shop is seen as a house of horrors. And, I mean, there's potions brewing, there's hanging carcasses and skins and things like that. And then through sheer hope and inner desire, the plot is resolved. Because it's more than just luck that Joseph comes along in time to save the donkey. Um, it's an unabiding faith that right will overcome all obstacles. Also, um, Don Bluth liked to use rotoscoping in when he was animating, and so and you you could see that in like Secret of Nim and his other features. So the character of Joseph was rotoscoped. Um, Anyway, so there were more than 150 artists and technicians involved in this production. There were 100,000 final drawings for the finished film, which is, and more than triple that uh, were sketches, pencil tests, and rough animation. This, there are three songs, a small one, a friendly face, and the market song. These are written by Don Bluth and Richard Rice. And for the first time since Sleeping Beauty... A choral sound was used. A choral, yeah, chorus was used uh, extensively used. They had a twelve voice choir and a forty-two piece orchestra. But interestingly, this was a pivotal point for the studio. There were, um, there were. You know, Blues had worked on Pete's Dragon, the animation for that, and he worked on Small One. So. He had sort of gathered a group of other animators who agreed with his vision of animation. But there were those at the studio who felt Booth's direction was wrong because they, they felt that he was merely duplicating Disney's past and the quality of the old animated features, and that was the wrong direction to go in. There, this other group felt that the studio should go in more modern directions. And these were animators that came from schools that preached the free spirit of animation and emphasized experimentation or wild exaggeration. And this split the Disney Animation Studio. And very much like how the studio split in the 40s, where um, Disney animators thought continuing to create more and more realistic animation was wrong. Many in the 40s would break away and start the UPA studio. Ironically, though, this time it would be those who wanted to follow the 40s Disney philosophy that would break away from Disney and follow Don Bluth and start the Don Bluth studio. So so this is, not only is this, I think, a lovely story, and, and a beautiful little short. This is historic mm-hmm. for Disney animation because this split the studio. And um, and it sort of led into that sort of dark time where they, 
you know, that 70s animation that a lot of people just felt, you know, the studio just wasn't at its creative best. So, so have you seen this one? Craig? I have. I don't watch it every year, but I watch it about uh, I, I watch it about once every three or four years, and I really, I really do enjoy it. I, I do like the animation. I I love the amount of Don Bluth in it because I mean I grew up on Don Bluth movies just like I did Disney movies. Uh, it's just uh, it's it's one of those ones that I don't. I don't ever have that urge to watch it every single year, but it's definitely something that I'd recommend. If you haven't given it a shot before, give it one. Go out Mm -hmm. and do it. Well, I also like that it it reminds us of of what Christmas is really all about. I mean, you know, Santa Claus and candy canes and snowmen and all that are are terrific. And and I embrace them fully (laughs) during the season, but... I also embrace what started Christmas and what the, what is at the heart of the season. And the small one is a nice reminder of that. And so that's why I like to watch this one every year. I, so That makes sense. Yeah. But Great Garland, Craig's next films are so tinsel that I can hardly w- wait to watch them every year. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I, I think we mentioned this on a show a couple couple weeks back uh, as we started to to mention it because I said it wasn't on Disney Plus, and then lo and behold, that very week it made its debut on Disney it Plus. Did. And uh, I guess I, I conjured it in that way. But we have uh, two of my absolute favorites from uh, 2009, and then also from 2011. Prep and Landing, and then its sequel, Prep and Landing Naughty, excuse me, Naughty versus Nice, and uh, these are animated specials that are thirty minutes long. That they were based on an idea by Chris Williams, but unfortunately, he got busy, I believe, with Bolt, and he went off mm-hmm. to direct that. And so, uh, even though he he came up with the idea then was eventually uh made out and uh further developed by kevin dieters and stevie wormer's skeleton and uh it is just it it is classic disney but in that 3d animation style and uh you know one of the uh, one of the people who was cheerleading this project more than anything else was John Lasseter at the time when he was uh, chief creative officer mm-hmm. of Disney Animation. And he he's part of the reason why it, it did come to, to fruition and it actually it actually made it there. And it is just um, it, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful series in a sense. I wish they would have been able to make more than just the two, but uh, basically prep and landing is just based around two elves. You have Wayne and, and Lanny and Wayne is uh, for the first movie, you know, he's, he's, he wants to finally move on to his next step from prep and landing. He wants to be the director of the naughty list. And, um, and then he's ends up, having to stay in prep and landing with lanny who is is new to it he's a rookie and he looks up to wayne but uh yeah he's he's a complete mess in every sense (laughs) in the word 
And oh, but he's so enthusiastic. He graduated at the top of his classic Crinkle Academy. He, yeah, but he's just. It was not, a small class. <laughs> he's just not great. He is not good. And Wayne doesn't get the. He, of course, he's he doesn't get that promotion, and so uh, that leads to that same bitterness that we've all had when our hopes and dreams are kind of dashed. We just we lose enthusiasm for what we're doing, and unfortunately for Prep and Landing, they're the ones who are the first people in to get the house ready for Santa Claus. They have to make sure that that the landing strip is set up. They have to make sure that the milk and cookies are out. The children are nestled snug in their beds. They. They go through all of that, and they make it to their house. Uh, there's a massive, massive snowstorm happening at the house, and because Wayne is kind of slacking off, they haven't prepared the house, which uh, that will impact little Timmy, who's in the house. And uh, it's it then comes down to whether or not Wayne will have that change of heart to be able to uh, muster up the 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 energy and the enthusiasm he needs to get the job done and i'm not going to ruin that for you but uh they clearly made a sequel so i don't think you would you would want to watch a sequel about an elf who uh didn't it wasn't able to get the job done the first time but uh he's Unless still it's like, you know their time in rehab or something you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which also would have been very interesting but uh, you know, it's it it does end happily. I will just say that, but it's on you to watch it. But the sequel, then Naughty versus Nice, uh, kind of picks right up with with where we're we're leaving off, and uh, in a way. But we're introduced to new characters. Uh, we have the cool elf brigade, and that is the the elves that are in charge of uh, delivering the lumps of coal to the children who don't actually get their present from santa claus so uh the the premise of this one is slightly different though wayne you know he's at the he's at the top of his job with prep and landing he's happy he's having fun lanny has got his feet under him at this point and he he's doing better but uh a unfortunately a hacker did steal some of the north pole technology that they have and it could send christmas into complete chaos and they need they need help they need to to get the technology back they need to to make everything okay and of course because wayne and lanny are the the two characters that we're following they have to they have to take over the job but unfortunately they're not doing it by themselves they are they're doing it with one of the elves from the cool elf brigade uh who also just happens to be uh, Wayne's brother in all of this, the uh, the brother, of course, who even though he is the younger brother and and is in the Cool Elf Brigade, he just always constantly shows up his brother, whether it's getting the how the the car that he wants or or doing uh, more impressive uh, things in the role and making Elf of the Year, all of that. He's just he's always he's always showing off in making Wayne not look as good. So uh, that that leads uh, to a very, very stressful situation where they have to, they have to save Christmas. And uh, a lot of the story also has to deal with the fact that the, the child that they are uh, trying to save Christmas from is having a lot of issues with a sibling that 
definitely uh, she she can see a lot of uh, Wayne and in, in Noel in and see a lot of their situation in her position and uh, so yeah they have to save Christmas and uh, if if you thought that this one was going to end badly well it doesn't but uh, <laughs> overall these two shorts um, it, they're just. I, I feel like they're underrated because they were they debuted at a time where the 3D animation with Disney had not hit its full stride yet. I mean, we're still right around uh, Tangled, just being Tangled coming out. I think in between both of them, uh, if I have my years correctly. And so Disney and computer animation isn't isn't working on all cylinders yet. But it, it got a huge uh names in in the casting even though they're not huge to you they're huge to you necessarily they were pretty big at the time you know sarah chalk from roseanne and scrubs played mcgee the kind of the um the elf that's almost i don't want to say call center but she's kind of running running the she's show. sort of like she's mission control mission control thank you that's the word i was looking for um, yeah i mean yeah sort of like the in the, um for airplanes, yes, she's, she's up there in the tower, control exactly. tower, exactly. And Dave Foley, who a lot of people know as Flick from A Bug's Life, or uh, if you're like me, growing up in the '90s, Kids in the Hall, Dave Foley. Um, we have in the sequel Rob Riggle, who's basically in every single comedy movie now, uh, played Noel. And uh, Chris Parnell has a voice in it from SNL. There's just there's so many recognizable voices in it. So the animation is just I, I feel like it's perfect. Uh, the the voices just match it so well. Uh, they they hit music in this so well. Um, you know, having uh, the Christmas song with um, Nat King Cole. Uh, opening with chestnuts mm-hmm. roasting on an open fire like it just they they hit everything about these specials exactly how they needed to and even though you could look at them as oh they're tv specials how are they going to stand the test of time i actually think the prep and landing has gotten better with age and will stand the test of time as long as people oh, keep absolutely. watching absolutely absolutely i also love how they brought in modern technology to show how santa adapts i always like those films like you know that little gingerbread man or gbm that they use it's like a like a tool out of star trek or something like their scanners or something tricorder it yeah. does everything and you know the 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 tail hook landings that they have and um the little angel air guns and the sparkle blasters i mean all these things that you know th- how they have the christmas designs for them and all of that and um there, there there's a, there's a lot of little uh Oh, I don't know. There's a lot of little things in there. Um, people might... One of the things that I learned, I always wondered at the end, it says that it's dedicated to um, Walter A. Fuller. It says, in loving... The final film, there's a credit line. In loving memory of Walter A. Fuller. And I thought, who is Walter A. Fuller? And so he was an air traffic controller at Bob Hope Airport in Burbank. And he was a neighbor of Susie Coffer, who worked in development at Walt Disney Animation Studios. So she was able to arrange for Dieters and Wormer Skelton to meet with him at the Burbank Air Traffic Control Tower in spring 2008 because they were looking for insights and terminology they could incorporate into the scenes featuring Maggie 
you know, who performs similar functions for Santa Claus. And um, because she's she's been at the North Pole Christmas Eve Command Center coordinator for almost 200 years. And the backstory is that she was picked personally for the job by Santa. And it was a role once held by Maggie's own mother. So Walter Fuller gave them a tour and continued to communicate with them and supplying information for the next five months until, and, and folks in Southern California, I know, definitely remember this. He died in the Chatsworth Metrolink crash, and that was the largest commuter rail disaster in California's history. And 25 people were killed and 135 injured. And so to honor his memory and generosity, there's an elf who looks like him that's included in the North Pole Tower scene. In, and in the final film, they have this credit line in loving memory of Walter A. Fuller. So... um Anyway, but what I but what I also love is there's a lot of little um, cameos and little other things in there. Well, Wayne and Lanny make a brief cameo appearance in Olaf's Frozen Adventure in 2017. That was also co-written and co-directed by Dieters and Wormer Skelton. When Olaf is standing in front of a fireplace watching four children in nightgowns hang up their Christmas stockings. To the far right side of the mantle are carved wooden figures of the two characters of Lanny and and Wayne, right next to a Yule goat that I guess is a Scandinavian tradition. And um, also, there's they, they pay homage to other Christmas specials and traditions, like in Maggie's office, she has a Christmas tree from a Charlie Brown Christmas. When Wayne prepares to enter Santa's office, Miss Holly is typing the lyrics to Jingle Bells. Um, the launch code given by Maggie is Dash Away from the poem A Visit to St. Nicholas. You know, Dash Away, Dash Away, Dash Away all. Timmy Turwelp is named in honor of Tiny Tim, of course, from A Christmas Carol. Um, then Mickey's Christmas Carol is on the television of Lanny and Wayne's assigned house. Um, and although Timmy's residence is supposed to be in the Ohio Valley region of the United States, the latitude and longitude that's sent to Santa Claus are actually of the Walt Disney Company's um, headquarters in Burbank, California. Um, there is a license plate with the characters 12501 Wed. That's a reference to the birth date of Walt Disney. And then there's a German shepherd shown in the prologue getting dusted to sleep. That's Bolt. And he's just recolored <laughs> and all that because they were finishing up that film and prep and landing was being made. And um, Timmy's Nightlight features Goofy in a pose from the poster for the, for the theatrical short, How to Hook Up Your Home Theater. And um, also, the, some of the references were inspired by the show's co-director, Kevin Dieters, during a scene in which Wayne is being naughty and he makes himself a drink. The milk carton Wayne is using has the logo of Dieters' dairy. That's a real dairy in Quincy, Illinois, which is Kevin Dieters' hometown. A toy giraffe in Timmy's bedroom is based on a similar toy that belongs to one of Dieters' children. And when Santa shows Wayne what's going on at Timmy's house Christmas morning... The home shown is based on the house that Dieters grew up in. And um, also in Naughty versus Nice, Timmy makes an appearance. We see his behavioral data on one of the elves' computers. 
Um, in a flashback scene, as Grace walks away from the store, Santa, the next children in line are Ralphie Parker and the little boy with the goggles from A Christmas Story. And um, one of Grace's books has a logo for Walt Disney's comics and stories on its spine. And then as Noel goes in for a closer look at what Gracie's doing, he goes under a bed that has stuffed toys, and there's a Mickey Mouse in there and one of Nessie from a, from a Disney short that they were working on at the time. So so all kinds of little things. That's a lot, yeah. <laughs> that are in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when Grace meets the elves, she's wearing a Disney princess shirt. So Yeah, yeah. So I, I love all that kind of stuff. Me too, me too. I like a good but, Easter egg. I wish these would continue. I mean, I know there was hope that I think Dieter had hoped, Dieter had hoped that, um, that, you know, that Wayne and Lanny would become walk around characters at the parks. <laughs> and I think that would be great at Disney Hollywood Studios I, during the Christmas season. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. Even, you know, walk around characters. They'd be a little tall. <laughs> it's a little bit hard to, to, to justify that, but. I also look at, you know, even though it's not happening this year because of where we're at with the the 2020 Mm -hmm. pandemic, um, if this was a normal year right now, I would be wishing, as much as I love recording with you, Michael, I I would be wishing that I was back at Hollywood Studios watching Jingle Bell Jingle Bam, which is literally a, a Christmas show that basically takes uh the characters from prep and landing and makes them the star of this show where they just Mm -hmm. intersperse disney pixar clips inside of it with the christmas theme but the heart of the show is wayne and lanny in prep and landing so uh it clearly it still has a life to this day that fireworks show debuted i think in 2015 or 2016 so it's not even like you can say oh you know it's not relevant it hasn't been around they chose to to start a fireworks show years after the the shorts stopped being produced. So I could I still hope maybe Disney Plus one day that they they revive Prep and Landing. I hope so. I, I would love to see them continue the series on Disney Plus mm-hmm. because these are just so charming and so much fun. Yeah, it's. Um, I feel like it's the closest that we'll get to really good classic holiday specials um it at least for the foreseeable future i i there nothing against shrek the halls and and other uh <laughs> productions like that it's just not the same as prep and no, landing i agree i agree these are much more traditional in their feel and their storytelling yep. so well now that we've seen how tra- santa travels around the world each year and how the elves prep for his landing, my final film tells the story of what happens when one of Santa's reindeers goes astray. And this is the 1989 film Prancer, which was my daughter's favorite Christmas film. We would watch it multiple times every Christmas season and when she was growing up. And it tells the story of eight-year-old Jessica, who lives on a struggling apple farm with her father and brother. Her mother's recently died, and they are still grieving. And Jessica is... You would like her, Craig, because she's the kind of little girl that plays Christmas music (laughs) year-round. I would. (laughs) And she loves singing Christmas carols at the top of her lungs, much to the chagrin of her teacher. And 
In the woods, Jessica comes across an injured deer that she is convinced is one of Santa's reindeer, and her faith rests on healing the animal and getting him back to the North Pole by Christmas Eve. And she's convinced it's Prancer because there's this large three-dimensional decoration that hangs over the town's main street of Santa and his reindeer, and the Prancer one falls off and breaks. And so um, so she's convinced that this is the real Prancer who has also fallen out of the sky. And it's just such a heartwarming... There, there are some parts that are just heartbreaking. But it's, it's a heartwarming story to see this, this broken family where um, the father's grieving, the, the son... There, there's a teenage brother who's sort of... Um, He's sort of doing his own thing, but not really. Clearly loves his family. Um, and the father's just trying to make ends meet. And then there's this goofy little girl who just has is full of hope and, and is just trying to hang on, you know. And um, so you just see this journey this family goes through with um, Prancer being at the center of it. And Abe Vigoda is in it, who... Um, he he looked like he was 127 in this film, and he <laughs> and looked so, like he was 127 back in The Godfather too. So. I know, and and when he was in Barney Miller, I mean, the man <laughs> looks the same no matter what. But he's in this as I I believe he's the town vet. Oh. It, but principal <laughs> photography was in Three Oaks, Michigan, and a documentary by Nick Bogart has been was produced um about making the film there it's called lights camera and three oaks the making of prancer and he said at the time three oaks is going through a tough there are tough times there were a lot of empty storefronts and so the film's director john hancock was best known for directing the baseball film bang the drum solely with robert de niro and he looked at locations in vermont indiana and elsewhere before deciding on Three Oaks, and whilst growing up, his parents owned a fruit farm near Laporte, Indiana. So Hancock was familiar with this region. And so Bogart said Hancock selected Three Oaks in part because it didn't have a lot of neon signs or aluminum siding, and it retained a traditional Midwestern American look that really hadn't changed much since the 1950s. And in the original script by Greg Taylor, the town was called Fall River, but Hancock chose to identify it as Three Oaks. So they pulled together a cast that included Sam Elliott, and that's Jessica's father. Um, Academy Award winner Cloris Leachman is in it. Um, you know, Abe Vigoda is in it. Michael Constantine is in it. And then um, Johnny Galecki is the brother. He, of course, would go on to star in the TV series Roseanne and The Big Bang Theory. And Christmas Vacation. Yes. Okay. And and the director's big discovery, though, was Rebecca Harrell. And this was, she, this was her very first movie audition, and she plays Jessica. And, you know, we talked about how Roger Ebert and what he said about him up at Christmas Carol and all that. He singled her out for praise. He called her a very attractive and talented little actress in an interview for the local newspaper, the Herald Palladium. Um and I think she's gone on now. She also films documentaries. She's a director of that. But behind the scenes, 
this film had some bumps along the way. There were a number of live reindeer who, you know, took on the role of Prancer, and they they were a bit difficult to deal with. And you can see in the film these these were not tamed beasts. They they were housed in in a nearby Galleon horse farm, and they came. They, came, they these stand-ins for Prancer came from Alabama, and uh, well, according to what I read, they bordered on being untrainable. Okay. Um, they were either camera shy or they just were downright stubborn. They refused to look into the lens, and at times they were dangerous, and they would aim their antlers at whoever was nearby. The only thing that seemed to calm them down were, were keeping bananas on the set. And so Hancock said they would let the camera roll through a thousand feet of film, trying to get shots of a reindeer looking directly into the camera, and he didn't get any. And also, the Bogart, who did the documentary, noted that reindeer must be allergic to gluten after Hancock recalled that the apple pie eaten by Prancer had to be made with special crust that didn't include flour. And they also had to deal with below-average amount of snow that year, using both an indoor set built in Laporte that recreated downtown Three Oaks. And they also had to do um, manufactured snow on demand, and they had to put cotton bunting on rooftops. And then the foam carcinol, which is used for emergency landings, um, airport landings, and instant potato flakes blown into the air with large fans to create the snow. And they, But they said they had to sweep up the potato flakes right away after shooting because if the reindeer ate them, the flakes would swell in their stomachs. But they said it looked totally real in the <laughs> film, which it did. And um, some of the scenes were shot at other locations, and so the exteriors don't always match up with southwest Michigan because, like, they have mountains. <laughs> um, but much of the local landscape was featured. They did a sweeping aerial shot of the town, and that was a model that was created by a local craftsman, Don Bowman. Scenes were filmed at the United Methodist Church and Dryer's Meats, although that footage ended up on the cutting room floor of, of, of Dryer's Meats. They used a lot of locals in the scene, the local choirs from the church and all of that. They had their um, they had their premiere. The world premiere was actually at the cinema there. And so, with a, a, at the Laporte Cinema, and and so a lot of the Three Oaks residents were in attendance, and they all they all enjoyed um, recognizing the familiar faces and buildings. I when I was reading the reviews and all that, they said that um, that that all of the actors there at the film they were all really nice and interacted with the townspeople, except for one actor, and they wouldn't say who it was. And I, I want, so now, now I'm trying to figure out who it was. I'm wondering if it was Abe Vigoda. I don't think it was <laughs> Abe Vigoda. He, he used to go on Conan all the time and was really goofy and oh, had okay. fun with it. So I'm, I'm going to mm. believe it wasn't Abe Vigoda. Oh, maybe it's, I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, and, and you know, the movie initially drew mixed reviews, but it came to be a holiday favorite and it, it plays regularly on TV and all of that. Um, there was a direct-to-video sequel, Prancer Returns, released in 2001 with a new cast and crew. I own it. I have not watched it yet. So I'm not too sure what that's about. I, I assume Prancer Returns and yeah. 
Christmas, you know? and he has to get back in time for Christmas. <laughs> um, but if you drive to Three Oaks, in which is in the southwest corner of Michigan, closer to Indiana and Chicago than Detroit, it's obvious Prancer has been there. From what I've been able to figure out, there's a billboard pic- picturing Prancer that welcomes visitors to town. Children can have their picture taken with a decoration of Santa and all of his reindeer, except Prancer. The three-dimensional display that hung over the town's main street in the film now sits on the post office lawn just across from the church. And there's a hole in the reindeer lineup for Prancer, who, as I mentioned, you know, fell from the sky in, in an opening scene. So this is a sweet film. Um, it, it's a nice story. It's just, you know, just just the journey that the family goes through. Um to to help the daughter who believes this is really Prancer. I mean, it really just brings them all together mm-hmm. and gives them hope again because they're they're in such grief. And for them and, and they just realize that they still have each other and and that they're gonna get through this. It, it's just a wonderful film. And so I, I really recommend it. Again, this is if you haven't watched it, you know, watch it this season. I, I think it's even more poignant, you know, this season. Um, so um, definitely add Prancer to your list. Yeah. I know yeah. I've watched bits and pieces of it over the years uh, as it's been on TV, but never, I, I don't think I've ever watched it start to finish. So I, I might have to consider that this year. You know, I don't. Yeah. It's, it, I, I'm sure I have seen it completely in its entirety, watching bits and pieces of it. But it's always different when you you watch a movie start to finish. Yeah, you, you kind of just get it a little bit more. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Well, it's fitting that we close out our Christmas film episode with a look at how Santa prepares for the big night. Yes, our final final one that we're going to talk about i'm not actually going to go into a ton of depth on it because this isn't actually like a couple other things we've mentioned here this isn't the first time that we've gone in depth on this short uh it's not even the first time this year uh we we went into it on our silly symphonies episode Mm -hmm. where we talked about our favorite ones and uh it had to get brought back up again though uh for this one and that's santa's workshop uh and we, I wish we could have been sitting here talking about the night me, that night before Christmas as well, and uh, and saying that we had both Santa's Workshop and its sequel on Disney Plus, but unfortunately not. Uh, Christmas did not come for us this year. Instead, we got the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special <laughs> and yes. Godmothered. But I actually enjoyed Godmothered. I thought that was. I haven't watched it yet. It, it's cute. I I liked it a lot more than Noel last year, and I uh, pretty much hated that. But uh, <laughs> we went so in depth on the history. I'm sure Michael's going to share uh, some of the bigger notes about it. But uh, if if just a, a brief talk about it santa's workshop like i said it's the first of uh two silly symphony shorts that feature around uh our favorite saint nicholas santa claus and santa's workshop the one that's on disney plus is uh santa getting ready for christmas and uh you know he's he's got to check his list 
then check it twice because that's exactly what Santa's going to be doing. And he's working with with his elves to to prepare for Christmas Eve. So, uh, you know, elves are getting the reindeer ready and and then the elves are also building the toys and all along to the the music that of course has to be there in a silly symphony short and uh, the toys come to life and march into Santa's bag and and of course it has to end with Santa actually setting off for Christmas Day but uh, it's it, it, the reason why for me it's a it's a must watch is that it just it evokes that 30s Disney mm-hmm. Christmas feel that you know I, I mentioned with uh, Pluto's Christmas tree that 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 represents that 50s mid-century feel that they were going and that they use in a lot of uh, a lot of merchandise and stuff today with Mickey Mouse. Uh, the on the flip side is this 30s feel that if it was a normal year we'd be able to walk down Buena Vista Street at Disney California Adventure and feel like we're seeing seeing this era represented seeing. Uh, you know window displays that that show off uh scenes that that pay homage to to santa's workshop and the night before christmas it is it's this just it's a moment captured in time that uh that just is one of those extra moments that just evokes christmas for me much like i said santa does in miracle on 34th street and Pluto's Christmas tree does and even Muppet Christmas Carol to a point this also like this has defined my my look of Christmas and with Santa and it's just it's of course has its its moment that uh with with a little bit of um a little bit of uh racier stuff that was normal for the time but definitely frowned upon about today but it's still take take that moment out it's still a very very enjoyable short and it's it's a perfect christmas eve watch if if you have some a spare five six minutes on christmas eve mm-hmm. yeah i agree with you and this this was like a big jump in in animation quality for the walt disney studio in terms of um the the color and the quality of the animation and and the lushness of it um, you know some of Walt's top animators worked on the film like Art Babbitt Freddie Moore Jack Kinney you know um, Ben Sharpstein Norm Ferguson Clyde Geronimi Les Clark you know um, Walt even uh, voiced one of the elves so um, when when um, Santa reviews letters from children the name of billy brown comes up who hasn't washed behind his ears for seven years so santa tells a nearby elf to include a cake of soap with billy's presence of a noah's ark and the elf responds okay a cake of soap and that was walt disney doing his um, falsetto that we've all come to know so that that's a nice little touch in it but um, yeah, go back and listen to our Silly Symphonies. I think that's episodes 152, 153. I go into a lot more detail on this film. There was a lot that's been edited out over the years. And we, we get into that. You know, talk about a hidden Mickey there that's, mm-hmm. that's in the film. And in Sweden and Norway, Santa's Workshop is part of the Christmas television special From All of Us to All of You that is shown every year at Christmas Eve. And... Um, 
So, and, and I know I had friends that were there last year. They go there every year because they have children that live there and their grandchildren live there. And they watch this. And I said, okay, you have to confirm with me that, that this is still showing. And it, it's shown in several countries um, back there that from all of us to all of you still, and even in France. So, um, anyway, so yeah, th- so this is just a few of our favorite films that we'll be watching this Christmas and holiday season. And, and of course, we have so many others on our list that are on other streaming services and it, in our library. Exactly. Yeah. And that doesn't even include what we've also missed on Disney Plus with, uh, with the Santa Claus and, and the Jim Carrey Christmas Carol that we're clearly going to watch and, and a lot of those other good ones, too. So uh, I'll have to rewatch that to see if my memory of it is as bad as I recall. Uh, Michael, j- just don't. I will. <laughs> I will fly to California, and I will just. I, I'll hit you or something, and that will. That'll. Well, it'll get the yeah. same outcome. My bad Christmas Carol version this year might be that one on FX. It's on Hulu actually now. <laughs> that is just dreadful. It might make the Jim Carrey version look good. So um, gasp. Anyway. <laughs> but. Um, but we hope some of our favorites are yours and that we've introduced you to a few new ones that we'll, you'll check out. Maybe make them part of your tradition. If you, have, if you have favorite films not on our list, be sure to let us know so we can check them out. But now it's time to take a look back for the last time in 2020 at This Week in Disney History. Okay, December 20th. There, there, there is all kinds of stuff going on December 20th, and a lot of it really sad. Oh, good, <laughs> so, good. Anyway, December just, well, as we've gone through this month, December was just a bad time for the Disney family. Just, you know, rough. I mean, most of the deaths took place in December. Um, so December 20th. Royal Disney, one of Walt's older brothers, business partner and co-founder of the Walt Disney Company, passed away at the age of 78 of a cerebral hemorrhage in Burbank, California, on December 20, 1971. Roy served as the company's chief executive officer from 1929 to 1971 and president from 1945 to 1971. Whilst Walt was the creative man, Roy was the one who made sure the company was financially stable And it was Roy who made sure Walt Disney World was built. With both Disney brothers gone, the board of directors, for the first time, had to turn outside the Disney family for leadership. Who was named the chairman and the president of Walt Disney Productions? And it was two people. I know just because of past events that have happened in the past nine months or so. I know that um, chairman was Don Tatum. Correct. But um, president. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you give me president. I'm, I'm happy. Card Walker. Card Walker. Okay. Card I, I could have got there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Okay, December 21st, an Imagineer, master model maker, and Disney legend was born in Pekin, Illinois on December 21st, 1913. A tribute to this person is on a haunted mansion tombstone that reads, Here lies good old Fred, a great big rock fell on his head, R.I.P., 
What is this Imagineer's name? Um, I, I know we've talked about him. Uh, I can picture his name, but it's not it's not coming to me. I think it's like it starts with a G or a J. Mm-hmm. I know it starts with a J. Yeah, I know it's that last name. I can't I can't think of what it is though. Fred Jurger. Jurger. Thank you. Yeah. Walt Disney handpicked Jurger in 1953 to become one of his first three model makers. He helped realize Walt's vision by crafting three-dimensional miniature models of Disney theme parks, as well as motion picture sets and props before they were brought to full-scale life. Jurger also designed and constructed most of the rock work at Walt Disney World for its 1971 opening, including the Atrium Waterfall featured at the Polynesian Resort that many people miss. Um, after retiring in 1979, Jurger returned a few years later to oversee the look of Epcot Center and also supervise the rock work for Tokyo Disneyland. I believe he was also very close to being the Gerber baby. <laughs> that might be wrong. I think so. I think that was a woman. <laughs> Who's the Gerber baby? <laughs> she used to make the rounds doing interviews. Gerber, Jurger, it's all it, yeah. it, same, <laughs> same sound at least. Yeah. Okay, December twenty second. This writer, Imagineer, and Disney legend passed away in Burbank, California on December 22, 1995. He was the brother-in-law of Lillian and Walt Disney, and the first president of what is known today as Walt Disney Imagineering. What is his name? I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed on this one, but I'm not sure. Bill Cottrell. Okay, okay. So... so so he first worked cameras at the Walt Disney Studio in 1929, and he eventually moved into the story department, where he contributed ideas to shorts, including Who Killed Cock Robin and Wink and Blink and a Nod. He went on to direct the Wicked Witch and Evil Queen sequences in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and later contributed to the stories of Pinocchio and Peter Pan. He was one of the driving forces behind Disneyland's creation, and was one of Walt Disney's most trusted advisors. Okay, Okay. December 23rd, the sixth film to ever be shot in CinemaScope, which is a widescreen movie format, is released by the Walt Disney Studio on December 23rd, 1954. What is the title of this film? I'm going to say this was uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's right. Based on the classic story by Jules Verne. It starred Kirk Douglas, James Mason, and Peter Lorre. The film will be enormously popular at the box office, grossing $6.8 million on its first release. It, however, will not make a profit because it is one of the most expensive movies produced up to this time, costing over $9 million. The film will be also highly praised for the performances of the leading actors, the first time that major Hollywood stars have appeared in a Disney film. And playing in front of 20,000 Leagues is the Donald Duck animated short Grand Canyon Scope, Walt Disney's first cartoon filmed in CinemaScope, in which Donald takes a tour of the Grand Canyon. Of course, it does not go smoothly. I think he meets a mountain lion on the way. Okay, December 24th. Walt Disney's 20th animated feature is released on December 24th, 1970. What is the title of the film? 
1970. I think it just got, it's getting a lot of um, press because it's celebrating its a big anniversary this year. Yeah, that would make, that makes sense, 50th uh, anniversary. So, 70, we're... At with that, um, I'm going to take a wild shot on this one, and I it's kind of coming down in my head between Sword and Stone and Aristocats, but I'm thinking Aristocats. It's Aristocats. The story revolves around a family of aristocratic cats and an alley cat who prevents a butler from being from kidnapping them to gain his mistress's fortune. This film is noted for being the last to be approved by Walt Disney. He passed away in 1966, whilst the film was still in early production. The all-star cast includes Phil Harris as Thomas O'Malley, the orange cat, Eva Gabor as Duchess, the white cat, Sterling Holloway as Roquefort, the mouse, Paul Winchell as Shun Gon, the Chinese cat, Thurl Ravencroft as Billy Boss, the German cat, and Scatman Crothers as Scat Cat, the Panther Persian. This is a fun little film. I have a piece of original artwork hanging oh, on my wall that's cool. from this film. It's um, one of the in-between uh, sketches of um, Marie, the little cat. Oh, wow. Uh, nice. friends, some friends were at an estate sale of one of the artists who worked on the film, and they purchased it for me years so ago. cool. Yeah, that is cool. Okay, and finally, December 25th, Merry Christmas. Walt Disney's first television special, One Hour in Wonderland, airs on NBC at 4 p.m. on December 25th, 1950. Who is the show's sponsor? (laughs) Coca-Cola. That is absolutely right. One Hour in Wonderland was sponsored by Coca-Cola Company and hosted by Walt Disney himself. It was viewed by about 20 million people, which is amazing considering only 10.5 million television sets were in the United States at that time. The guests included Edgar Bergen and his dummies, Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd, Walt's daughters, Diane and Sharon, Catherine Beaumont, the voice of Walt Disney's upcoming newest animated feature, Alice in Wonderland, and Bobby Driscoll, the voice of Peter Pan. The Firehouse 5 Plus 2, a Dixieland ensemble made up of Disney employees, also performed. I love their vignette that they do is my favorite part of the whole show. (laughs) Okay. Oh, and then December 26th. First televised on NBC on December 4th. 1957, this episode of Walt Disney's Disneyland series is released to theaters on December 26, 1957, as a 49-minute mini-feature directed, di- directed by animator Ward Kimball. What is the name of this mini-feature? I only know this because we just covered it this year, and that's uh, Mars and Beyond. That's correct, Mars and Beyond. Very good. You did did nicely to end up end out our year. Thank you. It was hard for the first couple, but then yeah. I feel like I made up for it. Got a Christmas gift at the end with some easier questions. Good. Well, Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, since we've been talking about films and Disney Plus and Hulu, uh, and there was the big Walt Disney Company's investors meeting last week with all their announcements and plans for Disney Plus and some of their theatrical releases and all that. So what announcements are you most excited about from that meeting? I know you talked a little about it on our Walt Disney World show earlier this week. But yeah, I'm uh there's a lot of intriguing things coming. Um I I just I'm going to stay away from the theatrical releases because you know, as much as I'm excited about like Rogue Squadrons, uh directed by Patty Jenkins of Wonder Woman fame and a couple other ones mentioned uh you know that I I don't know why they were included on this because it was solely about Disney Plus and then it was like they wanted to throw in theatrical releases too for some odd reason. Well, I will say probably to show they're not Warner Brothers <laughs> and that they're not totally abandoning the movie theater. Well, and that is a good point. I think that was that was part of the decision making behind it. I will say one of the theatrical uh, releases that uh, that is upcoming, uh, Cruella, that we got to see a little bit of. Um, at the D23 Expo, and I believe we've talked about it on this at least once, uh, I mm-hmm. did have a link to the um, the the media actual portion of the, the broadcast. So I did not get the cutaways when they went to show like a trailer or anything. I know some of them I didn't were get shown, them either. Those but, sizzle reels, yeah, I didn't see those. Yeah, I know a and, lot of them have already been released. Yes, like all the Marvel ones were released right away, but I was able to see a couple of them that, that weren't, and like so I, I got to see Cruella, the, the trailer for that, or well, they called it a a sneak peek but it was basically a trailer with emma stone also talking in it and it actually it looks it it, it looks pretty fun so i'm mm-hmm. i'm i'm still I'm very skeptical i'm still skeptical for it in the long run because it still has to it still has to make out an entire movie but i feel like they have a good grasp on it and i'm one i'm one who does not like the glenn close uh remakes of 101 Dalmatians so I'm I feel like I'm giving this one a fair shot by shunning everything that has come before it but uh, the biggest thing that I was excited about with all of the announcements was actually the uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers uh, <laughs> the new hybrid animated movie that's going to come from that uh, it I that was another one where I got to watch the actual um, the, the little animation test that they put together for it it is so hilarious. Uh, the animation was very rough. Like as the the finished animation they showed us, um, uh, only only Dale was finished, and his animated form was finished. Everything else was very very crude. But it's really really hilarious. And if if you've listened to John Mulaney stand up or seen him perform, and and you know Andy Samberg from SNL and the movies he's been in and saturday night live like you you just you 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 understand it It, it's a perfect combination together it's going to be really really funny and probably just a a highlight for for all of us 90s kids out there but uh that's that's kind of in, in the disney realm those two were caught my eye um star wars visions the the series that is going to be uh done by the japanese anime uh creators that one 
has has me uh, peaked as well too. And uh, for Marvel, you know, it's I I'm still sitting at the edge of my seat waiting for Wandavision. But Falcon and, the, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier that that mm-hmm. clip looked incredible. The the Loki clip even looked like a lot of fun. Uh, there's just there's so much. Good. Oh gosh, Loki is DB Cooper. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, I thought, okay, this is going to be fun. Yeah, <laughs> I I honestly Marvel's lineup looked amazing uh i think star wars their lucasfilm their lineup looks amazing especially add in willow as well too uh mm-hmm. disney it's not as solid like a lot of the animated uh series that they're doing that's like moana and and such um, Baymax. it's i i'm looking at that as filler i i don't think i'm ever going to sit down and watch those so i i hope it was exciting to some people but I think they're just trying to, you know, say, "Oh, we are oh, making more." The younger folks, I think, I think children especially are going to enjoy those. Yeah. So, I'm I'm excited about the Star Wars sort of becoming this multiverse kind of thing. I'm glad that they're, I I love science fiction, so I'm and I really was not a fan of the last three Star Wars films. I, yeah. I found them disappointing, and it looks like they're back. They've realized. Okay, this pe- what's in the Mandalorian people really like. It resonates with them. It's back harkens back to the Star Wars that people love and has captured a new audience for Star Wars and that they're building on that. I'm ve- and like I'm more of a Star Trek fan, but I've been very disappointed with what Star Trek has done in recent years. Um I'm really excited for Star Wars. I wish this is something Star Trek would do. Mm-hmm. is these different series and i think they're starting to but um i'm very excited yeah about i about I, this, all the star, star wars, wars it feels like they're starting to get on the right path i know they're not giving up on movies but with the series that they have upcoming i feel like they have a a good grasp on what they actually need to be doing to to produce the best material they can and you know of course uh, uh of course as well to pixar kind of dropped a lot of theatrical stuff mm-hmm. especially with Lightyear and um you know it's uh what what's the name of the other one i can't even think of it right now i know oh the, well the other one was there was reina and the last dragon going both to disney plus premiere yes. and and then um and the other one for disney theaters and canto and and yeah I can't think of and the then, other I Pixar one. The other it's Pixar driving one. me nuts now because everyone just latched onto Lightyear, of course, because uh, it's wild and apparently the world was way too confused that what Lightyear is about. How can it be about the real story of Buzz Lightyear, and how can it sound like Chris Evans because Buzz Lightyear is Tim Allen? But uh, uh, Tim Allen's the toy. <laughs> Chris Evans is the character. Yeah. I mean, it made sense to me from the start, yeah, but a lot sense of people to me. were very confused. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, and it's interesting to see how does this, how is this premiere going to work? You know, because there's some people that believe once they paid their thirty dollars for Mulan, that that meant they get anything that is goes to premiere. No. <laughs> and I don't know if it works that way. Yeah. 
no, it's not. It's gonna be it's gonna be a fee every single time. And uh, you know, I well, I wasn't I wasn't on board with Milan and uh, paying the money for that. I will probably do it for Raya. I am a Raya, lot more excited is, for that. So yeah, I am too. It looks really good. Yeah, I, I, I will, I will give it a shot as long as I have, as long as I have time when it does come out where I can sit down and watch it. As long as it's in like the first week or two, because if it gets into like, oh, it's been out for a month and I can still do the the premiere of it at that point, I might as well just wait. If I can wait a month, I can wait months. But if I have time in those first couple weeks, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll definitely give it a shot. Anyway, alrighty. So, well, this is it. We're going on our holiday break. Do you have any plans um, for the next couple weeks during the holiday season? I don't. Just uh, resting, relaxa- relaxation, uh, you know, enjoying time with my family and remembering all the things that I have thankful, uh, everything we have to be thankful for this year and just, uh, you know, just making sure that i'm ready for 2021 whatever whatever is upon us with that yeah yeah i don't have a lot of plans in fact i'm not entirely sure what i'm going to do normally i would go down spend christmas day with carol's family spend the night dot my daughter would join us and then you know we'd get a hotel room and then um the next day i serve queen's tea is a tradition to whoever of carol's family is still around and i bring everything for that, and then, th- then I got thrown for a loop because Joni, my daughter, could only work, could only get one holiday, Thanksgiving or Christmas. So of course she couldn't decide which one. So she made me make the decision for her. And I said, "Well, Christmas is more festive. There'll be more family, and you know, you don't Christmas working on Christmas Day is tough. Thanksgiving, they'll bring in food and you know, and all that stuff for you." So she took off Christmas. Then her company, because we're in our double purple lockdown in our rainbow of doom um, tears that we have here for the pandemic in California. Um, her company told her they cannot travel for the next two weeks, including Christmas, and that if they do and they get COVID, um, they will have to uh, they have to sequester for two weeks and um, and they will not pay them, and they will not cover their medical bills related to wow. COVID. Yeah. And I thought, I don't know if this is even legal. So then I thought, okay, now what? Do I spend Christmas up here, and then we just sort of Zoom, you know, or something together most of the day? And But I have all their gifts here. I told her, okay, I want you to play with their heads and ask them, okay, what if my father comes to visit me? I told her, okay, I already know what the answer is to that, but I just want you to screw with them a little. So she hasn't come back with that. So I don't know. I don't know now if I'm going to go down or I might spend Christmas here and like we'll we'll Zoom or or whatever, FaceTime in the morning, and then maybe we'll each FaceTime as we enjoy our respective dinners and all that. I know that's what a lot of people did for Thanksgiving. And then... um, and then we'll um, have, um, and then maybe I'll go down the next day to San Francisco and host the Queen's Tea. And, yeah. And, you know, go to the cemetery and stuff like that. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so, but hopefully relaxing a little too. The house is in great turmoil because it's being painted and in the interior right now and all that. So anyway. 
<laughs> but oh, overall, the, I, I'm I'm look I'm hoping it's going to be a not very nice season for everybody, and that we have a great big beautiful 2021. Now that the vaccine is rolling out, and that a year from now this is all just in our rearview mirror yes. what we've been through. I concur, so, and we left you yeah. with a nice big episode to. We Chew we sure did. Your, it'll season. take you. T- it'll <laughs> take you two weeks. So listen to this. And we're at the end of another year of connecting with Walt. It's been a fun five years. Yeah. And and we're looking forward to another great year of sharing stories with you in 2021. As I mentioned, we're taking a, the next couple of weeks off. We'll be back on January 8th, 2021. So until then, from all of us at Connecting with Walt to all of you, we wish you a Very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a Joyous New Year. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 